You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And if you're still doing your holiday shopping, or if you still have just a little bit of holiday shopping left, make sure you check out our 2020 holiday gift guide. We've got a link to it in the show notes. A lot of great stuff on there. One thing that's on our holiday gift guide is our limited edition merch drop. You can shop the Revision Path collection over at moan-cherry.com. That's M-O-N-C-H-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's even a 50% off gift code if you buy more than $50 worth of merch, which is a pretty great deal. But you got to be quick because both the discount and the merch drop will be gone on December 15th, which is tomorrow. So if you want a piece of merch from this drop, you really do not have much time. Links to everything will be in the show notes. All right, now let's get down to this week's interview. I'm talking with Brandon Viney, group creative lead at Google Brand Studio in Portland, Oregon. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Brandon Viney. I'm a group creative lead at uh, Google's Brand Studio, also a creative director. It's pretty much the same thing. Talk to me about what exactly that is. Like, I sort of get what you mean when you say creative director, but talk to me about the work that you do through Google Brand Studio. Like, what is that? Well, I originally come from the advertising side. And so being on the, on the client side, it's, it's pretty much the same thing in Brand Studio. If you think about uh, what an agency uh, provides, the service an agency provides to a company like Google, we're doing the exact same thing just internally. And so oh. we become one of the agencies of our own company. And we also have Creative Lab, who is our sister company, who's who's super awesome. They're a little bit, been around a little longer than we have. But, um, and because we're a brand studio, we have brand in the name, we primarily deal with brand reputation. And so that's why a lot of the stuff we work on isn't necessarily product centric as much as it's the brand of Google. Oh, that's interesting. So like your own internal agency, like I think Disney has something Similar to that called Yellow Shoes, which is like their internal agency that's just for the company. Yeah, you see a trend of that happening um, kind of around a lot of the bigger companies. It's been going on for quite some time now. Why do you think they do that instead of working with like other agencies? For, I mean, obviously, it's probably money driven, you know, when you can kind of control the uh, creative output. I think, you know, there's some advantages to it. There's some disadvantages to it as well. I think when you're an agency you have a little bit more freedom because you have a little bit less knowledge. And when you're internal, you kind of are so closely connected to the things that I think you, you have a little more restriction on your creativity because you, you have all the information. You are part of the company, but you are also more invested in it. I think when you work in the agency side, you're a little more invested in your personal output, your reputation of the work you've made. And I think when you're internal, you do kind of invest in the company because the company's growth is your growth. So I can see how you kind of get sort of tunnel vision almost because you're that close to it, that close yeah. to the brand. Yeah. It's important to be like very creative still outside of that so that you don't just kind of be indoctrinated into one way of doing things. You know, Brand Studio doesn't want to do just the Google thing. We want to evolve the Google thing. You mentioned uh, coming over from advertising. How did you get started there? 
Oh man, I took the absolute road <laughs> less traveled to get advertising. Um, when I was growing up in, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, absolute middle of nowhere, Virginia in the Appalachian, Blue Ridge Mountains. Wanted to play sports, tragically couldn't play sports anymore and couldn't figure out what else I wanted to do. But I know I was creative. I just didn't know, you know, I, I could paint and I could draw, but I didn't know what else I could do. Right. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to make music videos. And so when I went to VCU for art school, I kind of went and checked out the film school. They were like, you need a portfolio, a film portfolio. And I'm like, I ain't even ever seen a video camera. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I don't even I wouldn't even know where to start that. The art program to me was also like really a strange adjustment. So I dropped out. And went back and talked to a career counselor and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her, man, I want to make these Nike commercials. And at this time, I didn't even know advertising was a a thing called advertising agencies. I didn't even know that existed. I thought like Nike just made their own commercials. Right. And you got to think I'm coming from a sports background. So I want to still be connected to sports and creativity. And and being a director to me would have allowed me to do that. Well, the lady tells me, look, you you sound like a uh, art director in advertising. And we have one of the best programs in the nation here. Sign me up. <laughs> and I've been in it ever since. Nice. What's an average day like for you? At Google? A lot of calls. I mean, obviously, it used to be a little bit different before COVID. But it's probably a little more balanced. But, you know, now I wake up by nine. I'm, I'm on calls, reviewing work, having some status updates, looking at what's coming up, kind of strategizing about how we're going to deal with, you know, things that are on the horizon and then we get into the work and we start working on the work, meeting with teams, polishing, presenting, and then repeat. You know, and we do that until we hit a deadline. What are like some of the, the deliverables that you're creating for Google? Well, if you think like Brand Studio every year does a year in search where we, we crunch the data of the entire year and we look at like what are the most interesting, notable data driven trends of the previous year. And then we always make a year in film of that. We also have, have been doing for quite some time now, data-driven work in general. So for example, like Black History Month, we did a data-driven piece. International Women's Day, we did a data-driven piece. And so it's a really interesting kind of brief, you know, when you're on the advertising side, rarely do you have a brief like this, where it's rooted in fact, not just general creativity and opinion. And strategy, it's like this in, in our case now, we're, we're looking at strategy, but also we have to be validated through the data. It has to be real. And so it's it's really interesting and a little bit harder, but also like really satisfying when you come out and you go, that's not us saying that. That's the people saying that. The world said that. We can look at the numbers and say, we're not saying this in this commercial. You said this. Now, two of the the spots that I saw that you worked on for Google Moments, and it looks like they're sort of centered around search terms. I think one was for Black History Month and the other one was around Black Girl Magic. How did those spots come about? You know, so we had a brief that was obviously around data. You know, the goal was to tell some data stories on a cadence throughout the year because we're trying to show the power of Google's data and what the result of that is. That That is a snapshot of what the world's POV is in a way, right? Again, it's not me, Brandon, saying Black Girl Magic. It's We saw that in the, in the data it was hitting an all-time high. So we're like, yeah. And then you can start to go out and correlate what things are happening in the zeitgeist that are making that most searched. And then we want to tell a story about that. And so for me, it was when I first got to Google, learning about how data works. We had a super strong team. 
got in and started concepting on some things that we wanted to say. And, you know, obviously Black Girl Magic was something I wanted to say because I felt like the year I wanted to really, I felt like the year was like very appropriate to lean on Black women and show our support and and respect for the accomplishments of Black women. Because it felt like at the time we were hitting like all time highs of, of like recognition for once. It's always been happening but people were starting to notice it. And so we want to go and do put a cherry on top of that and show that. And so when we dove into the numbers, it was real. And that gave us the ability to say a message like that. The same thing with Black History Month. It started off at the same time as Black Girl Magic, but we started to uncover and peel back the onion and go, we got a lot of material here. This deserves big stage. And that's how we developed it. Now, when you're getting these briefs, like what is your creative process like when it comes to starting a new project? It's different at the, at the creative lead level, at the group lead level. You, you know, we help flesh out the brief to give to our teams. But when you're, at the, when you're at the lead level and at the creative level, you know, for me, I always start diving into what do I know first? What do I think first? I always try to do a round of concepting without really diving into the brief because I want to get my preconceived notions out. I want to get the low hanging fruit out. I want to get the thing, the first thought that came to my mind, I want to get that out without it being inhibited by any other thought starters. And then at that point, when I feel like I've tapped the bottom of that well, I start to pull the brief in and pull nuggets of the brief out to repeat that process. And I find for me, that's a very fruitful way to get a very strong diversity of thought and ideas. And now for those that are listening to this and they might find this very interesting, and I won't lie, I kind of want to know this too. Like what kind of a creative person does Google look for, for their brand studio? Do they have to have this sort of knowledge of advertising and working in agencies? Like how does a designer catch Google's attention for something like this? It's a question I might not be a hundred percent qualified to answer. I know for, for me, I just had a, I had a team of people, a network of people who I knew had, had made a journey over to Google, some really talented um, senior folks who were looking to change the, you know, the, the um, standard of thinking creatively and saying, you know, this is a very homogenous way Google thinks at the moment. We know some creative heavy hitters around the industry. Let's go and start finding these people. And it just so happened that there was a a availability in the Portland area where I was currently at. And so I kind of had a perfect storm of, you know, things that allowed me to be able to to work there. It wasn't something I was looking for. You know, I'm I'm so thankful that I've had the opportunity to be there, but it was definitely not on my radar, you know, because it wasn't to me known as a place where people like me would be doing the things that I want to do. You know, it, it just didn't seem like that was my my cup of tea. But I think if I was going to give people advice about Google, it would be like, don't try to be, don't, don't try to work at Google. Uh, it feel, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't, don't like set your sights on it, but don't do everything the way Google does it. Like bring an interesting point of view to what Google does, because that's ultimately what every company is going to be looking to do, whether it be Google, Apple, or Nike or anyone is they're going to be looking, they, they already are doing what they're doing and they're doing it well. If you can take what they're doing and evolve it so it still feels like them, so it still feels uniquely like them, but still feels like you, that's when you become very valuable to a company. When you're the person that brings the thing we, we couldn't think of, you bring the Maurice way of looking at it, but it still feels like Google, but it still feels like you. And that starts to be more interesting for a company. It sounds like it's less about really like a portfolio or trying to meet a recruiter. It's just about doing great work. And hopefully that meshes with what Google's trying to do. 
Yeah, you, you want to know your recruiters and, and you want to have a great portfolio ultimately, but you just don't want that portfolio to feel like you made it so you could work at Google. I think companies now are starting to get really hip to wanting original thinkers, wanting people that are unique and have a great understanding of the job, but, but have a way of doing it that's different because you get into the corporate world and what you start to see is there's a lot of people in that world that, that are nerds of that world, right? They are just complete book nerds of that world. They could tell you advertising front and back. They could tell you marketing front and back. That doesn't mean that they're really good at implementing it and changing it. If, you know, nobody needs Brandon Viney. Like, I don't want any of my students or mentees to be me because they already have me. I want them to be uniquely them and have a great understanding of it. It will help to reach out to recruiters. Recruiters are looking for you. So you might as well help them find you, you know what I mean? And express your interest in it. Those seeds, they do grow. If you can find a recruiter that is working in the department that you want to work at, at a place like Google, and you start to build a rapport, have a great understanding of what the needs of that company are, and you can prove that that is something you can do. It just makes the options easier. I imagine these recruiters, they'll probably end up getting swamped with people trying to to contact them because they know that that's kind of their way in, you know? Absolutely. And that's where being very unique and, and approaching people very uniquely is, right? A lot of times, internal Googlers, we have a very strong program inside of Google where we can refer people and that improves people's chances, right? We get a portal where we can submit a person and kind of make an argument for them. And that just allows them to be filtered through quicker. It probably increases it just by pinch, but I was going to ask, does that work? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, you know, I've referred people, I've referred, you know, a dozen or two people and one person has been hired out of that. That felt really good because it was of everyone I, I referred, everyone I thought was very worthy of it and, and deserved it. So to at least have one person make it through that gauntlet felt really good and felt like I was contributing to the culture. Mm, gotcha. Now, one of the things that you helped found while at Google Brand Studios is the Google Brand Studios Fellowship Program. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh man, it was it was probably the best best thing I've ever done at Google so far. Um, we had a team of people like when I when I came over from the advertising side, I was working at an agency and 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 like part of my mission is always to mentor people and you know I always want to make it very easy for for people to get the things that took us a long time to get you know save you a lot of time. And I had a little bit of a hangover because I was about to start running a program at that agency. And it was the one thing that made me like sad to leave. Well, I got there and, and a couple of coworkers, when I expressed that, my boss said, why don't you do it here? And I'm thinking, man, I wouldn't have a clue how to do that here, <laughs> you know. And luckily for me, there was like some amazing support. A few people caught wind that I was going to try to attempt to start something like that and immediately said, I want in. And it was the, you know, it was probably the best thing I could ever do because it was people who really knew Google really had uh, cut their teeth at Google and really understood how to make things work. You know, with that team and within a few months we were running the program. So when it it comes zero to a (laughs) hundred, like it sounds like it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, kind of starting new projects, do you have a particular creative process since you're the lead you I know you said you kind of flesh out the briefs but are you doing any hands-on work with the team as well yeah I, I like to still do that I feel like um, a lot of the creative leads and group creative leads uh, still want to get their hands dirty and, and still want to be able to jump in and 
help guide the work. But we always have to make space for, you know, the creatives underneath us and, and make space for them to do what they do best. And then, you know, a lot of times we might be privy to more information. And that's when we kind of step in and, and you know, pick up the back half and, and help push it over the finish line. So I, I do. I, I don't think I'll ever want to be completely removed from, you know, being a part of the work. But I have learned to step back a little bit and, and try to make space for the people. Yeah, that's one thing back when I, I had a leadership position at a, a tech startup I used to work for. And it was it was around like media and marketing and stuff. And I hated how many meetings there were because I, I would get to the end of the week <laughs> and I felt like I didn't do anything but just meet with people. Like I, I cleared the way for my team to do their work, but I didn't feel like I really did any work. I just talked to people all yeah. week. Yeah, that's a problem. The the higher up, you know, it's something. It's a very valuable lesson, Marius, because people don't realize this. You you have a a lot of a lot of people really want to be the leader. You know, they want to be the boss. They don't realize that the further up the ladder you go, the further removed from the work you tend to go. And when you're when you're kind of at mid level and junior level and senior level, even you're still making that. You're actually making the work, and you're being protected from a lot of the day to day meetings and. You know, and your time is a little bit more protected because you're you're the muscle that makes the creative go. When you get up in the leadership level, you you really do spend a lot of your time learning about rules, learning about things you wish you didn't know, <laughs> you know, and it, it isn't necessarily always the fun part. Yeah, I don't miss it, but I do miss that, <laughs> that you know, that feeling of being able to kind of jump in and get some things done. Because I feel like I could tell someone, OK, we're looking for X, Y, Z, and then they bring it back to me. And I'm like... Look, I'll just do it. I'll just do it, yeah. which is probably not the best way to to go about that. But, you know, you know, sometimes it is. But, you know, sometimes like there's an old saying, you know, if you want something done right, do it yourself. But I think a lot of times we just we got to be more patient with people, because I think the worst mistake creative directors make and group creative leads make and chief creative officers make ECDs make is they assume you can interpret what they what they mean and they assume you're a mind reader and i think you have to be very patient with people and i feel like if i if i give you feedback and it's not being implemented the first person i blame is myself because i feel like maybe i didn't implement that correctly i didn't i didn't explain it correctly and then i need to you know to be better about that and save us all some time you talked about growing up in virginia in a in what you said the middle of nowhere is kind of how you put it (laughs) i mean how small are we talking when you say that? About 4,000 people. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's my high school small. was like 400 people. Oh, well, that's actually pretty big. My high school was about 200, but... Oh, no, you mean like all four years? Oh, yeah, all four years. Okay, yeah. then, yeah, that is pretty <laughs> small. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How did you sort of first get exposed to, like, art and design and all of this? <laughs> Man, luck. <laughs> I'm a real curious person. I think, you know, my mother's always kind of said that. That I was always talking and I was always like into stuff and I was always asking questions. And I don't think that's changed. I'm, I'm still the same way. So I just always knew there was more to the world than the Appalachian Mountains. I knew it was more to the world than like my small town, Tazewell, Virginia. You know, I, I was like, there's got to be more out here. I was just the type of person that got curious about anything I saw. And I had a cousin, Bill, who was just this phenomenal artist. I mean, comic books, man. He could just, it was like, I would stare at his drawings for hours and just be like, a human did that? I would start drawing his drawings. You know, I would trace them. And like, I would do this just religiously. I I would trace his drawings so much that I would like burn a hole through them, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And and I just knew there was something to this. And, And then I got to the point where I was 
I would go to school and draw comic cards. And that was back when people would trade comic cards. And I would take Marvel comic cards and scale them up from a card to like an 11 by 17 sheet of paper, you know. And I got really good at replicating that. And I would sell those drawings to kids. And yeah, my dad, you know, he, he probably regrets it now, but he he thought that I wasn't selling drawings. You know, he was like, you up to something because there's no way nobody's paying you for no drawing. You know, but he, you know, he didn't know what he didn't know. You know, where I'm from, creativity and art's not valued. We have some amazing art teachers, but even then it wasn't necessarily valued. It was like a pastime. It was like a hobby. No one ever thought you could make a career of it. And uh, neither did I. I just knew that I wanted to try something. I just wanted to keep trying something, you know. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be a common refrain from, from people who I talked to that did art as a kid. Like they got to school and they were usually doing something where they were like, I don't know, airbrushing shirts or doing something, yeah, you know, designing yeah. sneakers or something. But it was never impressed upon them like, hey, I can take this and turn it into a profession. But it sounds like you at least had a little bit of guidance toward that by even going to VCU, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, I just got lucky. Like, I started a community college, and um, it was a place called um, Southwest Community College. And uh, I was rehabbing an injury, and my twin sister was like, you going to college. You're not going to stay here. Because, uh, you know, I was like, I'm not going to college. If I can't play football, I'm not going to college. She was like, you going. So I, I got there, and it was the first time I was in, like, a college-level art program. And the art program at this community college was was prolific, for especially given where it was located, professor by the name of Ellen Elms was just, I mean, to this day where I'm still very close with her, she's, she's like my art mom, you know, because she, she saw something in me I didn't even know existed. She was one of the people that insisted that you need to leave and you need to go, you know, to a real, a real college for art. Southwest was a great college, but she, she wanted me to be exposed. She was like, you need to be around it. And, you know, with the help of, of some of the people, administrators at the, at the community college, they, they basically, filled out my application for me. Now that's how, look, this is how bad I was, you know, I, I didn't have a clue, my man, like I didn't know anything. And so I got to Richmond, Virginia, and it's like going to New York to me, you know, like from where I'm from, that was like going to New York. Like I'm 4,000 people in the entire city and I'm on a block with 4,000 people. That was crazy. So that exposure was something that took to adjust to. So it was, it was a lot of failure for me. And I think the difference between me and a lot of people who said, man, how did you do that? It's like, I just didn't, I was probably too dumb to give up, if I'm being honest. You know, like, I'm the type of person, if I knock on the door and it's closed, I go to the next door. I wasn't afraid to ask questions. And so I did a lot of question asking and probably pestering people until I got something. So you went to, you know, went to VCU for undergrad after kind of shifting over from uh, from this community college. Yeah. Once you graduated, like, what was your next step? Did you have an idea of where you wanted to go and the kind of work that you wanted to do? Not really, man, it was the worst. Let me tell you, like when I say it's been a long road, I mean it. You know, when I when I got through college, I had to drop out of college two or three times, to be honest, for financial, you know, financial reasons. And um, when I got back in, I would always pick right back up where I left off and keep trying to push. Finally, I graduated in 2007 and I graduated with our top honor in our in our um, mass communications, creative advertising graduation. And I'm like, man, I did it. You know, I graduated top honors in something like I'm good at this. It's time to go get a job. You know, this country boy about to go get a job. And it's 2007 and the economy is spiraling down, much like what you see today. And nobody was hiring a black art director, junior art director out of undergrad. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't care what awards you got. That was not happening. 
So it was pretty much like the highest of highs immediately to the lowest of lows. And, you know, I spent the next four years or so kind of doing any odd job I could do. You know, I was a DJ, so I could at least go make some money in a, in a bar or a club, bouncing nightclubs, you know, worked at a uh, worked as a freelance designer for a while on and off for four or five years, worked at a, a screen printing sign shop for a few years. Like I was just doing anything I could to stay creative and make money because it didn't feel like back then it was ever going to go away. I ended up going to grad school and get my master's. And that was luckily around the time things started to clear up. So you you start working these these kind of gigs after you are are getting out of school when did you make it into advertising? Because it sounds like you were still sort of just kind of finding your way. Like you said, you were kind of lost and sort of discovering the kind of stuff that you wanted to do. And I see that <laughs> yeah. you spent a number of years in advertising, but like, yeah. what was the shift? What what was the shift when that happened? Yeah, it was, well, you know, Cabell Harris was a professor of mine and, and um, I was working for him prior to grad school. He He owned an independent, small, small agency in Richmond, Virginia called Work Labs. And I learned so much from watching him. So I, I really cut my teeth in, in a really small operation with um, a guy who I consider to be a very much a genius. And, and Cabell was he, he was like he was an idol to me. And so to me, I was like, man, if I could just grow up and be like Cabell and have my own little five person agency and handling local business and pitching global work, even though I'm probably not going to get it. You know, <laughs> like it would just seem like the coolest gig, you know. And so I was just holding on to anything I had until grad school. And really what, what really changed my mind was a conversation I had with a buddy of mine, Clarence. And uh, Clarence Bradley, who, who's from Atlanta, actually, I went to the Martin Agency. The Martin Agency was going to offer me a um, design job. And Clarence said, no, don't take this job here. And I was like, man, I, I've been dying to get a real job, like a career. Like He said, you're not a Martin guy, you're a Wyden guy. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you're a Wyden and Kennedy guy. And I was like, yeah, of course, of course I am. But anyway, I need a job. job, though. He said, I'm serious, man. You need to go email Dan Wyden and you need to tell him you want to work for him. And so I was like, all right, say no more. And, you know, after another (laughs) whiskey ginger, I had enough courage to go do that. And uh, (laughs) I sent Dan Wyden an email. And I just watched Dan Wyden's video for the four A's where he talked about hiring more black people. We need, we need more black people. And it's a famous speech that he gave, you know? And so I'm thinking, man, this is the time. It couldn't be better. So I sent him this email and Dan wrote me right back to his credit. He wrote me right back and said, nah, dog. (laughs) He basically said, I don't see nothing that would make me hire you. And I was just blown away because I was like, of course you don't. Like I'm a, you know, I'm a undergrad, junior, junior, like, it's, yeah. you know, like you ain't, nobody's born to do advertising and marketing. It's a learned industry. So I'm thinking, man, really? Like I could, I guarantee I could do this work. So I didn't even bother writing back because my feelings were so hurt. I just said, I'm going to put Wyden and Kendi out of business. That was like my mindset. I was like, I'm going to go like in full attack mode now and just like get as qualified as I can. And so I called Cabell Harris, who was a professor who I was working for currently. And he said, do you got a portfolio? And I said, yeah, I'll go. I mean, I got like a basic one. He was like, all right, send it to me. I went home <laughs> after work that day and my computer had caught on fire. Damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying, dog. Like it was the worst. It was like the worst of everything. Lemony Snickets, you know what I'm saying? And 
I, I was like, I don't have nothing. And Kevin said, you work for me. Say no more. Like, I'll, I'll vouch for you for this. And I got in. And two years later, Wyden called. Unbeknownst to them, they didn't know how to email Dan. Just kind of a chain of events. And Wyden called and said, we'd love for you to come out. I said, when? They said, now. I said, all right. And I've never been back. No. Oh. So it sounds like he really kind of took a chance on you. Yeah. Well, they, you know. Cabell, Cabell knew what I, you know, he knew what I could bring. He, I think he knew as well, like that I didn't belong there. I think, you know, I think I was always a little bit bigger than, or my dreams were always a little bit bigger than, than my budget. You know, when Wyden called, they didn't know me. They didn't remember. They didn't know I'd email Dan. So they had no idea who it was. It was vindication for me to be like this job that I was telling the head of this company two years ago that he should hire me for is now hiring me without even knowing that I'm the same guy you rejected two years ago. You know? <laughs> the only difference now is that I owe the government a lot more money to have this opportunity. You know what I mean? And that was like the unfortunate thing to me that that still doesn't sit well with me considering now agencies are, you know, crawling over themselves to get diversity in the ranks. Yeah, they really are. And I mean, I would say they're, some of them are succeeding to some level of success, but I mean, I think it's going to be tough to move those kinds of numbers just in general, especially if we're talking about the tech industry, Absolutely. because some of these companies have so many people. And even if they move one percentage point, depending on how large the company is, that could be a lot of people or not that many people. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. You know, that's why we started the fellowship program. You know, that's why uh, Colleen, myself, Rebecca, Coleman, like, you know, Tabby, we all, that's why we did it is so that we could get, you know, like we saw something that was a problem. I'm looking at I'm looking at my people going, we the most creative people on earth. You know what I mean? Like hop on any social media platform and tell me I'm wrong. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going, how's it just me here? How is it just me at Wyden? How's it just me here? You know what I mean? Like, this ain't right. So you So know, like it, in, in the part of Wyden we were at, there weren't any other black people? There's a few of us. We had it was, and I mean a few of us. Like when I first got to Wyden, there were four black creatives when I first got there. That was it. Four black creatives. I think when I left, there might have been five. So th- that number always kind of floated around four or five, you know. Yeah. So with the work that you're doing through, and I mean, as much of this, I guess, as you can speak about, what's sort of coming down the pipeline from Google Brand Studio? What can we expect? Hopefully some even more better work, you know. It's amazing to be able to use the power of a company like Google to to like really help the world. Like, it is no shot on advertising because I love advertising. I'm actually probably more of an advertising person than I am a marketing person. You know what I mean? The culture of advertising is fun and marketing is a little, it's still fun, but it's a little less fun. And it's a little more, it's a little more business, right? You really are behind the curtain and you, you're understanding essential parts of the business. When in advertising, sometimes you're just being a free flying creative and it's just like, man, I don't care. I just got to be creative, you know? And I think the power of it is, though, like looking at a Google and looking at an Apple and looking at a Microsoft and looking at some of these these companies that actually have the power to help influence change in the world. When you can use the power of Google, you know, for example, we did this Black History Month piece. I'm so proud of this piece and what it was for representation. And when we launched it on the Oscars. We actually launched it or the Grammy. Sorry, we did it before Black History Month. We made sure we got an extra two days. Out of, you know what I mean? <laughs> we like we're gonna throw a couple more days on Black History Month and ain't, we ain't gonna tell nobody, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so we kicked off we kicked off the celebration around two days early, you know. And 
we were also able to donate significant amount of money, I think upwards of $3 million to the NAACP's AXO program. And we donated a 30-second spot on the Grammys as well. And I'm probably more proud of that because if we were doing that at an agency and we were putting that as part of our creative, we want to also donate money. We also want this. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? Because that's not what they do. An agency is not going to get kudos for helping another company that isn't the company paying them. You know what I mean? Like, whereas like with Google, that was a no brainer for them. We brought that to them and to their credit, to the company's credit, they were like, absolutely. Like, no questions asked. We should be doing that. And you're going, wow, we're able to use this creativity, this platform and the power financially of a powerhouse company to actually help someone and do something good. That, that was a good feeling, man. That was a real good feeling. Yeah. The way that, that you're explaining it really definitely sounds like that, that's a really good thing. That's good to hear. What would you say is something that perhaps not many people understand about you or about the work that you do? Uh, probably for me that they could do it too. You know, I have a pretty, pretty nice resume and a pretty nice portfolio. And I talk to people that be like, man, I want to be like, you know, I want to be like you. Well, you, you probably better than me. <laughs> you, know? you probably, you probably way better than me. You probably have more influence than me. You probably come from a place that you have more exposure than me. You probably already more creative than me. If I'm, if I'm here, you can be, you're going to be way further than me. You know, I took the stairs. You definitely taking the elevator, you know? Hmm. Why do you say that? Because I, I think, you know, like I'm, I'm from nowhere. I'm from the middle of nowhere, you know, like literally is sometimes I think about that and I go, I literally should, I shouldn't be where I'm at. Like I shouldn't be working at Google. Um, huh. You know, you some, sometimes you feel like you have survivor's remorse. I, I was going to say, yeah, so it um, sort of sounds like that. The beautiful thing about like the South and the country is you learn ethics, you learn morals, you learn respect, you learn hard work and manners and, and some of these things. But, you know, but you lose exposure to things. You lose like you feel like the world is is only a few square miles. You never think outside of those mountains. You know, being gone for so long now, the world's such a huge place. And like I'm jealous of kids that grew up in L.A. You know, what I mean? I'm, I'm jealous of kids that grew up in Seattle, Washington and got to hear Nirvana come through. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm jealous of kids that grew up in New York. I just hope that they understand it. Like they're growing up in a place where this influence is magnitude and it's all around them and they should like breathe it in every day and like be proud to be exposed and experience, you know, so much at a young age. Do you go back often? No, it's hard to go back. It's, it's hard to actually physically go back because it's, you know, I have to fly into like Richmond, Virginia, and then drive like five hours to my hometown. You know, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get back. I miss everybody, though. I miss, you know, I miss my hometown. I miss my mom and dad, brother and sisters, you know. Do they come and visit you? No, we country folks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know why I asked that because my family's yeah. the same, the same way. That's why you asked it because you was like, I know the answer to this is no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not far from my family because they're in, in Alabama and it's kind of like a straight shot on the highway to get there. But like, to your point, like, it's still not that easy because you can't like do a direct flight in. You have to fly in, then you have to drive or yeah. something like that. And like, I don't have a car. So like, if I go back home, I mean, I'm not going to fly to Montgomery because it's like a 45 minute flight, but like. The closest anyone, like if some of my other family members were to come in, the closest they could get is to Montgomery. Then they've got to drive at least 50 miles to get to Selma or to get to like 
someone's house. And I keep trying to tell them, like, what if there's an emergency and we have to get to you like very quickly? It's not easy to get to you quickly. And it's like, you might as well be speaking a foreign language. Like they don't, they don't understand. Yeah. (laughs) Foreign language. But you know, like it's weird because in a weird way that it's a bubble that is worth protecting. But then it's just like, sometimes you just really want to be like, man, you know, I always joke with people and say like, if you ain't heard, if you haven't had fresh sushi from the ocean, we can't talk about certain things because your exposure is going to be so low that you, you really won't understand it. But then there's some beautiful things. I always kind of get checked when I go back home about the simple things. Cause you realize that like people don't care about how nice your job is. They don't care. Yeah, you know they I mean? they really like, don't. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care how much you made it. <laughs> I am swiftly humbled every time I go back home. Like they don't care about the accolades that you've got. None of that matters. None of that. I don't, they don't tell care. nobody. I keep a, I keep almost a lower profile just for that reason, because I used to do things thinking that people would care like back home that I was like representing everybody. And I realized that like nobody cared. You know, what I mean, I could do, you know, I could do a national campaign that they were watching on TV. No one cared. And so you realize like, uh, you ain't getting that here. <laughs> you might get that somewhere else, but you, you just branded here. So. So this is kind of a, I guess, a related question to that. Like, do you feel an obligation to give back in some way? Yeah, I, I want to. I, you know, I think people just in general, you know, that's why we started the fellowship program. That's why I like I mentor so many students, man, because um, I want like I don't want nobody to have to take that road I took. I don't want people to have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get education, to, to be validated, to say I could do this job. It's a learned job. You know what I mean? Like bring somebody in that shows some talent and teach them and watch them. They'll do it. They'll do it in a year. You know what I mean? Like they don't have to go in and spend all their money and get in debt to do that. Like just take some time, put somebody in, put them on some work and watch what happens. I mean, the Brand Studio Fellowship, we brought in six students, four of still who are with us. And they're working on the biggest work in the company. One year. In one year, they were working on the biggest work in the company. We didn't like, I mean, honestly, we threw them to the wolves. We throw them in the ocean in the deep end. We just throw a life jacket out with them. You know what I mean? Like we ain't gonna let you sink, but you're gonna have to, you have to work, you know? I mean, I get that with the with the fellowship program. I probably should have asked that question a little clearer. Do you feel like you have to give back to your hometown? Yes and no. Like, I, I wouldn't know how to other than information. You know what I mean? You know, like your money don't ain't gonna do nothing back home, and then you then you realize you don't have as much as you thought you had because <laughs> you can't really do the things you wanted to. <laughs> you know, what I mean? if it was yeah. up to me, I, I would do. You know, if I was a billionaire, my hometown would have a lot of millionaires in it, but you know, information. And and I realized like I used to get angry when I felt like people didn't reach out to get information, you know, because I think about me and I go, man, if I had somebody from my hometown that was doing it, I'd reach out to them, put me on to something, like teach me something. Really, I don't get that. Nobody ever reaches out to me really like that. And I find myself being a person that's like approaching people and being like, yo, you know what you should do? <laughs> you know, just the same way a neighborhood will always treat you. People go, like, yeah, yeah, you know, shut up. <laughs> You're like, all right. Nobody wants to hear this information. So I'm so curious about that. Cause like, I feel the same way. Like, yeah. so <laughs> not to get too much into me, cause this interview is about you, but like when I left town, when I left and moved here to Atlanta and, you know, I've been doing all the things I've been doing here, I've had at times this kind of, this sort of want to give back in some way, like yeah. to go back to my old high school and mm-hmm. speak to people or like to go back and, and like, I don't know, start a program or something like that. But mm-hmm. then when I'm back home, I quickly feel like, oh, I can't save these people. And maybe save is not the <laughs> the right word, but like 
if I go back to my old high school, well, first of all, my old high school didn't even exist anymore. They tore the building down. But like, if I go back to that same like location to try to help out, I know it's not going to be well received. It won't be. Yeah, you know, not, like it's, if anything, it's going to be looked at as like charity. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, we don't need you to help us out, like that kind of you thing. Know how Southern folks are. Southern yeah, folks are. yeah, that's um, true. Nah, you ain't gonna come in here trying to tell me how to live my life. You know yeah, I mean? oh, you think you, you fancy? You from the big yeah. city, and you know, and, and, you know, it's a part of me that really loves that. Like, there's a part of me that just loves coming home and being like, maybe we shouldn't eat as much of that pork. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> well, who the hell are you talking to? I've been, I've been living my life, you know, sixty five years like this. Yeah, you know? like yeah, I guess you're right. It's weird because it's a balance, right? Like, take for example, my hometown is um. Still got a Confederate soldier in front of the courthouse, right? And the hypocrisy of of a town to think, you know, I'm probably one of the most, I don't know, I, I would imagine I'm probably one of the most successful on paper people that have ever come out of there just as far as like a career trajectory, you know what I mean? And I think about like programs I'd want to implement back to the school, like could somehow could I galvanize my company to help bring technology to a place that is a farming community and a coal mine community, that coal mines are going out and the farms are changing. Can I bring technology there in a way that would literally change the the town forever in a positive way? And then then I look at the courthouse and go, it's a Confederate soldier here. No, nah, maybe <laughs> maybe y'all ain't ready for this yet. If you ain't ready to take that down yet, you ain't ready for this blessing. You ain't ready for this information. You know what I mean? No, no, no. I, I know what you mean. I mean, Selma has a lot of, well, it's, I mean, it's Alabama. It's South yeah. Central Alabama. There's a lot of symbols of the Confederacy there. Actually, one of our, one of the housing projects in Selma's is called Nathan Bedford Forest Homes from the, the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Ironically, it's on George Washington Carver Avenue or something like that. So like you have that weird kind of juxtaposition like that, but like there's several like street names that are like that. And, and Selma is just very, it's a very segregated place anyway. And so when I go back, like sometimes I do feel like I want to give back. Honestly, it's not even for me. It's more so about preserving the legacy of the city and what it means in terms of like history and the civil rights movement and wanting to give back to the next generation. But then as soon as I'm there and I talk to people, I'm like, I can't help (laughs) y'all. There's nothing I can do for you. I'm so sorry. So sorry for this man. Like I can't, I can't do anything for it. You know, it's hard, man. Like, no, it really is. Like I, you know what the the worst thing in the world to me is like Facebook, you know what I mean? I'll jump on. Oh God, no, not Facebook. No, sorry. Yeah. That's yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. If anybody listening, if anybody listening is from a small town, you know, Facebook is, is probably the worst thing that ever happened to your town because oh my God. it's where, it's where <laughs> all the information is and it, it ain't none of it right. You know what I mean? Like I'll get on Facebook and see the scary thing to me is I'll, I'll see like teachers. I'll see like people who, who were like supposed to be the, the educators of your town saying racist things. You know what I mean? And you go, bro. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> I feel that a hundred, a hundred percent. I'm not going to go into that. I did a whole interview with Debbie Millen for design matters. If people really want to hear that story, go listen to that episode. But like, I feel you a hundred percent. Like I've went back and it's so interesting because my mom is still there. Like my mom and my older brother, and they'll tell me how like, oh, well, we bumped into such and such. You remember Miss Johnson that taught you English and, and yada, yeah. yada, yada. She was talking all this smack about you. I had to set her straight. And I'm like, why are you involving me in this small town <laughs> gossip? I don't care. Like, I'm not on Facebook for that very reason. Like, yeah. don't don't include me in the mess because I know how I am. Like, yeah. I will go back and confront people. And that's not 
something you really want to do in a small southern town. Like I got a uh, reputation to uphold. I'm trying to like start no shit, but like I feel you though. Like keep I, your I, mouth I shut, you know. Like <laughs> you know, like my twin sister always says, she keeps uh Facebook going so she can see who you know, because it's like those things like Facebook will tell me in towns like where I grew up, I might have had a thought about you, but now I have proof about it. So we we see it all the time back home. But I, you know, I said this to someone, and I I don't know if I still believe it, but there's a part of me that still does it. Racially, especially when you leave these towns and some of these small places that we grew up in, that you, you sometimes have this kind of abusive relationship with where you're from. You know, like it feels like as a black man in a small town, like, like I don't feel like the town wanted me, but some for some reason I still want it. Brandon, man, you know what? Oh my God. No, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know what ahead. I'm saying? It's a, it's a hard thing to reckon with where you, you sometimes you look back and I think about that. Like I'm at a, I'll be at a place like Google and someone will ask me where I'm from and I'm like, I'm from Townsville, Virginia, proudly, you know, and I'm putting that on the map, literally on the Google map. It's literally on there now, you know, and I think, but they wouldn't care about that. <laughs> you got a Confederate flag uh, in front of your courthouse, a Confederate soldier in front of your courthouse. You know oh I mean? my like, god yeah so so it's weird it's like it's a little <laughs> bit of that like syndrome like i feel like it's an abusive relationship sometimes well well if, if anything i have to say thank you for validating and putting into words something that i felt for a very long time because <laughs> like it's very much the same way it's interesting when i first moved out of selma and came to atlanta and was telling people i was from selma they actually thought i was from oregon they were oh, like really? oh you mean salem <laughs> like no not salem selma Oh, I've never heard of Selma. This is like, you know, pre-movie and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, like they had yeah. never they had never heard of Selma. I was like, no, it's in it's in Alabama. Like they'd never now heard you of say it. Say it, everybody knows. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, it's uh it's a double-edged sword. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I can I can already imagine. I yeah. Already imagine, so. <laughs> so who are who are some of the people that influence you, like for your work and just like in life in general? Oh, growing up, um, yeah, man, I had, you know, again, we didn't have a lot of exposure, so like other than the people in my community, like my, my community is the funniest human beings on earth. You, you know, you're a Southerner. And like, I gotta, I gotta tell you, like you learn a sense of humor from like your community. My community is like the funniest people on the planet. My grandmother was the coolest person, the funniest person. So I was so always so influenced by her. She passed away this year. So it was painful. My uncle Johnny was like you know, my biggest influence. And then other than that, it was like Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, you know, the show with Cliff Huxtable in it, <laughs> you know, you know, it was like those type of things. And then Outcast, like I remember being 1994, my older sister brought in an Outcast tape, and she put that joint on. And the first time I heard "All the Players Came," I was like, "This is it!" This, this, this <laughs> like every little country southern bone in my body just woke up, and I was like, "People that sound like me, that have accents like me," because you know, like growing up in a small town, especially in Virginia. We're close. Virginia is the pipeline. Like, so we're close to the north and we're right in the south. So we get northern cousins and we get, you know, and you have southern cousins. But we we also have a country southern dialect. Right. So people, you know, you'd have cousins coming from other places. and like, man, y'all sound funny. Yeah. I mean, y'all talk funny. Y'all south of the Mason-Dixon line, just like we are. Yeah. Yeah. They mess with your accent. And I I remember... I remember like back then it was, you know, you had East and West, you had Biggie and Pac and it was, you know, you had Death Row and Bad Boy and it, everything sounded like that creatively in the world, especially in the black world of music and, and entertainment. And then Outkast came out, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I was like, 
I remember big boy saying, man, like as I as I stand in my b boy stance with flip flops and socks and sweatpants, and I looked down, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, he's talking about me, you know. And, uh, this is how we talk, and this and it made me so proud to be a southerner, you know. And like I was so influenced by Outkast, I was so influenced by like Will Smith, I was so influenced by you know, like Will Smith taught me how to act at school, you know what I mean? Like being in a, a school that had a predominantly white influence in it. Will Smith kind of taught me how to like shake stuff off and like use humor, kind of divert things into like use charm and charisma to protect yourself. And so he was a huge influence. And I look back at some of the things in multimedia that were huge influences me. So it's fitting that I'm, that I'm kind of contributing to that pile now. Nice. Nice. What are you excited about at the moment? (laughs) <laughs> I'm excited about these numbers coming in. <laughs> <laughs> and for, for people that are listening, we're, we're recording this on uh, the Friday after election day. So it's at that time when votes are starting to get tallied and such. And we, I think by the time this comes out, we should know this will come out in like mid December, but yeah. Put numbers on the boards, you know what I'm saying? So hopefully I ain't jinxing that right here, but I'm excited <laughs> about, I'm excited about the energy that feels like, I don't know. This feels like a powerful moment in our history right now, of, um, yeah. especially especially our southern states, Atlanta. You know what I mean? Like, no matter what happens in this election, Stacey Abrams needs to be very recognized for what's going on down there. Um, I agree. I agree. Stacey, Stacey's been doing it here in Atlanta for a long time. I've probably told this story on the show before, but I worked with her 10, what year is this, 2020? Mm-hmm. 11 years ago, we worked together wow. on a political campaign. She was the campaign manager for Lisa Borders, who was running for mayor of Atlanta at the time. And she came wow. in at like the end part of the campaign. And we knew about Stacey because Stacey was kind of, I mean, back then Stacey was kind of the hometown hero. Like uh-huh. we knew that she was a writer. She was a, a romance writer under the name Selena Montgomery. We knew about the great work she was doing in like, you know, Georgia politics and stuff. But she didn't have, I mean, she wasn't the Stacey Abrams that like everyone knows now. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's so interesting to see her growth from there to now and how much on the like global stage she is. Like, man, we are so proud of her. I was actually just talking with a friend of mine yesterday. We had coffee and and we were talking about, man, remember back in the campaign days, we we would just be kicking it with (laughs) Stacey. And like now she's like the Stacey Abrams. The Stacey, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, like national treasure right now, because I don't know anybody above the Mason Dixon probably don't. In my mind, I was like, never. Like Georgia, Georgia, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like never, like nah. I mean, I understand Virginia being a little bit more um, enlightened, and because it's right near DC, and and it's and, and you have Richmond, this stronghold, and you have Virginia Beach, so you have like kind of these three major areas, especially because it's coastal in some places. I kind of, I kind of always like thought, yeah, one day, but I was like, man, uh, other than that, North Carolina below, yeah, right. Part of me wonders, like, if the reason that Georgia is, is like, has been turning blue as it is, is because over the past, I would say, 10 to 15 years, Georgia has really invested a lot in, like, the creative industry here, like film and television and everything. So there's, like, there's a ton of movies that are filmed down here. And, of course, we've got schools like Savannah College of Art and Design. Here Mm -hmm. in Atlanta, we have a bunch of HBCUs, of course. There's the music scene and all that sort of stuff. But like, I even remember, I think this was, God, this might have been a few years ago when I think there was like a a heartbeat, there was a heartbeat abortion bill or something that was potentially going to be passed. 
in the Georgia in the Georgia Senate, I think. Mm-hmm. And like studios in Hollywood were like, we will pull our shit out of Georgia if you pass it. <laughs> and guess what? Didn't pass. Didn't pass. Yeah, go ahead, Georgia. And like I'm I think fine. like and like the lieutenant governor had said something, some like shit about Delta, and Delta is like, we will take all this shit and leave. And they were like, okay, yeah. you know what? We didn't mean it. We was just playing. Like, <laughs> I love it. I, I, I do it. wonder though if that if that contributes to the bluing or the purpling. I guess I don't know because yeah, uh, definitely you get you get a few counties out. It's you are in the South. Oregon's definitely. The same way. I mean, Oregon's exactly the same way. I wouldn't say that I have a political party necessarily, but uh, I try to follow wherever the intelligence is, the science and the intelligence. So it just by default probably puts me in a you know a certain a certain party. But I feel like. People treat this stuff like sports teams. Yeah, yeah. Like this ain't no sports team. You know what I mean? Like this is life, and people people just vote and pick something and argue something. You know, like I grew up in Virginia, where the red, where where the Washington team, the the Washington with the racist name. Yeah, uh, the Washington football team. The Washington football team <laughs> um, has has literally been a bad team my entire life. Literally, in my entire life has been a bad team. It hasn't. They've. I think they've had one or two winning seasons my entire life. <laughs> Right. And people are still diehard fans. Right. You kind of see the parallels and the juxtaposition of how someone can sit there. Some one person on this side can say, I'm abandoning that team because it's never going to be a team worth watching. Right. And then you have some people who are like, no, my granddaddy was a Washington football team fan. My daddy was a Washington football team fan. I'm going to be a Washington football team fan. No matter what. You know what I mean? No matter what. And, and you look at how that is the same as. Our political parties. We treat them mascots, that elephant, that donkey, like they should be on the side of helmets. That's true. That is very true. It's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, it's also the power of advertising and marketing. It really is. Like, especially for this past campaign, because the other thing that you had to sort of contend with is the virus and the pandemic. Like, yeah. it's kind of hard to really, it's kind of hard to garner that same level of hope and optimism in in (laughs) past campaigns when you've got something that's out here, unfortunately, you know, killing so many people. So yeah, it's scary stuff, man. Do you feel satisfied creatively? No, but I'm getting there. The journey is always going to have ebbs and flows. And it's for anybody that's like listening to has aspirations to do creative for a living. It's a million ways to do it. Now you can't sacrifice the thing that makes you what you are to do your job. You have to make your job that way. And I love my job. I've, I've loved all of my jobs. But what I've learned is I've spent so much time doing those jobs that I've stopped painting. I've stopped drawing. I've stopped doing pottery. I've stopped doing music. Like, And I have to squeeze those things in as supplemental days of, you know, pieces of my day when they should be just like having breakfast. You know what I mean? Best part of my day, waking up and making a track. Like and now it's not because I don't do it, and I can feel that deficit. It's it's no different than people that like wake up in the morning and go for a run. If I don't have that morning creativity, then my day something's off. And so I've had to really like COVID has really made me you know um, think about it and take some time to think like I need to be I need to get back to the thing that makes my heart full and wholesome, and that's creating stuff. Do you have a, a dream project that you love to create? Yeah, I got a bunch of <laughs> you got you got another hour. <laughs> uh, I got, you know, I I always wanted to be a director, so I definitely have aspirations of doing something in the film world maybe soon. Over the, my career has allowed me advertising is a gateway career. It's definitely allowed me to make relationships with people who I respect so much that are 
doing versions of what I would want to do. And you, you kind of get to learn from it. Uh, you know, I, I met my favorite movie of all time is Friday to meet F. Gary Gray. I got to work with F. Gary Gray about two years ago and to sit down and just have a conversation about Friday and like to literally spend the whole week talking about it was amazing because it was like I never in a billion years thought I could make a Friday or talk to the person that made Friday and to be working on a job with him was was phenomenal. So, you know, that's one of my creative aspirations. I really want to get back into making things, prototyping stuff, you know, art projects. And I want to get back into painting. So this year, this year is dedicated to that. And I have a bucket list, a creative bucket list. I tell you, I think every creative should do this. I had no delusions of grandeur about being a great music producer, but it was something that I fancied as a kid, didn't have the financial means to really do it. Got into it later through DJing. So I said, before I die, I, wanna, I definitely want to produce a track for somebody and have it on the radio. <laughs> uh, definitely going to make a movie one day. I'm going to do a book one day. You know, I got a list. It's a list of things that like you got to speak into fruition and, and put them out there. And the, un- the universe answers that stuff. I started to see that. Creative bucket list. Yeah, man. Get a creative bucket list. Like put it down. But you know, the, the thing is, don't just say it. Say it out loud hmm. and write it down. Like put it on a print it out and put it on your bathroom window, on your bathroom mirror. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Because, man, I started learning the power of manifestation. You say stuff and it happens. Like when you say it and, and you believe it, it's, it really starts to happen. Like you really start to build this confidence in yourself. And I think, you know, working in advertising, it, it can go one or two ways when you're marketing advertising. Like you can make a commercial that you think is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you can go to a bar and that commercial come on. And you have 100 people be like, oh, boo, get this off the screen. Gross. What? <laughs> you talk about a reality check. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you talk about reality check. And that can either make you stronger and you realize that, like, everybody don't have to like everything. And as long as I like it, I got to have that confidence to like it myself. Or it can crush you and make you never want to show anything and do anything. And I think for years, I've started to, like, neglect that feeling of fear, like because of fear to put things out in the world and to make things. And now I'm, I'm finding that voice again in, in my body and my mind is saying like, you always want to make this. Why don't you just go make it? You always want to do this. Why don't you go do it? That's interesting. Do you feel that way about like the work that you do at Google or is it just your, like these, these personal kind of projects that you'd want to do? Well, I feel more fulfilled at Google. Like right now, the team that I work with is such an amazing team that they make they make space for that. That's what's kind of started this internal search for like what makes me what I am. What have I neglected? You know, again, you go back home and you talk to one of your cousins or something. I say, man, you still drawing? And you go, yeah. Well, wait a minute, do I still draw? <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah, man, you still painting? Yeah, but when is the last time I painted? You know, like you start thinking about that and you go, whoa, wait a minute. And so having success in a career and being able to like start building teams and, and like b- helping Google find its voice has, has in return started to help me find my voice again and feel more fulfilled. And, and that for to have that search to be more fulfilled, you know, the, the more fulfilled you are outside of work, the more fulfilled you will be in work. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing that you mentioned there, because like. When I go back home, people ask me all the time if I'm still doing music because I did music. I was a trombonist, so I played in the I played in the marching band, and like we, I mean, it was high school, but it was very much like a black marching band in the style of like Jackson State or Southern or something like that. So, and I worked with our band director, and I would 
help with like composing and stuff like that. And I was a section leader, so I could come up with stuff. So like I have a really strong affinity towards marching band and playing. Like if I have, if I make a creative bucket list, one of the things that I want to have on there is to be like a high school band director, which is really like super mundane. But like that feeling, cause you you know what it's like when black folks go to like a, a HBCU, like a football game or something <laughs> like that. They are there for the band, like ain't nothing like it. Yeah, like the football not, team, like mm, maybe, but like the band, like in the band in the stands, the band on the field. Like I have like my happiest, fondest, most joyous memories of high school are on the field in the stands yeah. playing, you know, or in the band room and. And like working out songs with the band director, working out harmonies with my section and all this kind of stuff. Like, but also I was part of, uh, we had a a community college and I was part of the jazz band there. And so I really got into like playing old jazz standards and getting into like Afro Cuban music and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so like my other, I mean, there's probably a bunch of stuff if I had to create a bucket list, but like another thing I would want to be is like a band leader of an Afro Cuban big band like like similar to like a bobby sanabria or something like that where you're i i I don't know something about that arranging and the sounds and all that stuff is just like so like when i go back home people ask me if i still play it i'm like i haven't picked up my trombone in like 15 years like i I couldn't tell you the last time i picked it up Uh, actually actually, i don't even have it i'm saying picked it up i don't even have it i sold it i don't even have one so like i was about to say i was about to give you a challenge i was about to say you gotta pick that joint up today (laughs) i do have a um it's like a little it's a midi controller thing that i bought it's funny i bought it before the pandemic because i was like i'm gonna teach myself music this year well i know music but like i was gonna get like try to get back into doing composing and stuff I don't know. Maybe that'll be my 2021 thing is to start getting into that because I really. How about about it be a December thing? Okay. It could be a December thing. I could work on that. Because you might as well make a December thing so that 2020 doesn't go untouched creatively in that way. Ah, that's true. Hold me accountable. That's true. (laughs) So one thing that I'm asking everyone on the show this year, and I'll ask you this question, how are you helping to build a more equitable future? Like through the work that you're doing and and your talents and your skills and everything. Yeah, representation is one for sure. Like everything I do, I try to do it authentically. Um, I try to represent and make sure that like my people, my community, my culture is all seen in a light. It's an accurate light. And I feel like I've already started to see the benefits of that, seeing representation. Also, I, man, you got to take time out for people. Like, you know, we was talking about being back home and, and you know, feeling like you really want to give people advice and wisdom and things like that. So my, my door is always open. My phone's always on. Uh, my email address is always there, like LinkedIn, Instagram, <laughs> even Facebook, if you must. But like I make time, I make time for people that got questions. If I got answers, I make time. That's something that um, I do a lot, a lot of daily. When I get off my day job, I probably stay on, a, on phone calls for another two or three hours a day. That's, that's including morning and night, you know, like, I'll get on a phone call early in the morning with somebody on the East Coast talking through their portfolio, giving them advice. And then as soon as I get off calls, I hop on calls on the West Coast of kids on the West Coast that are looking to break in. We do portfolio reviews, you know, like I don't talk about all that stuff. I don't post it up nowhere, nothing like that. But kids find me and and we we get to work because the goal is to, like, give them all that information so that they can get there faster. I take a lot of pride in that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like it's it's 2025. What are you working on? 
Man, I, I don't man, I don't know. Next five years, I'll be doing something even more creative for sure. Uh, hopefully, by then, I may have gotten brave enough to step into the film world full time, or or like I'll be doing something this creative at an elevated scale. Because the goal is to get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and then start to taper down to where I can just be live in peace and, and be creative. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? My website is com. You know, so anything Brandavani, that's me. Um, hit me up LinkedIn. Hit me up Brandavani. All right. Sounds good. Well, Brandon Viney, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Man, I, I really had no idea, like, you were going to be this cool and laid back doing the interview. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, sometimes it's it's interesting because, like, I'll tell people, like, look, 95% of the people I have on the show, I have never talked to them. Yeah. I have no clue how the conversation is going to go. And I'm like, man, Brandon, like, Brandon yeah. reminds me of, like, the folks back home. Brandon is cool. But, I mean, outside of that, like, it's clear that you definitely have – like the passion and the drive for the work that you do and that you're very passionate also just about giving back and making sure that the community is represented, that other people are coming up. And I think that's something that all of us as creatives can, can do more of out there. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, man, for sure. We're going to have to offline and catch up and, and laugh some more. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big thanks to Brandon Viney, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brandon and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.